Lord, you are worthy to be praised with our every thought and deed. Great God of highest heaven, glorify your name in us. Amen. It will be helpful to you if you have Acts 12 open in front of you. The big uh, lesson of this chapter is that Jesus is king. We see his reign at work as he's rescuing his people and removing his enemies. We're breaking into the book of Acts, that account of the early life of the church. And if you'd been reading it, uh, you would have been hearing about great encouragements. You would have been hearing about the church thriving. You would have uh, heard about people being added. No, not just added, multiplied into the church. People being added daily. You would have read about the love uh, for one another, the oneness within the church. And in the midst of all that encouragement, you would also have read about opposition and trouble. You know, God's blessing on his people, on his church, doesn't exempt them from trouble. Rather, God works through their difficulty, in their difficulty, bringing glory to himself and building his church. And that's what we come to as we read uh, in chapter 12. We meet uh, in verse 1, King Herod. Herod. Uh, There are a succession of Herods in the New Testament. Uh, They are all evil men opposed to whatever God is doing. Determined to rule as king themselves and not acknowledging God as Lord, resisting the rule of Jesus the King. So you have um, Herod uh, the Great, who we read about at Christmas time, the slaughter of the infants after the birth of Jesus in, in Bethlehem, because he is determined that he will be the only king. We have another Herod, his son, who murdered John the Baptist and was complicit in the death of Jesus. And his nephew, Herod, is the Herod we're talking about today. He's an outsider. He's not Jewish. And he is trying to gain favour with the Jewish establishment, with the religious leaders, by persecuting Christians. He seized and killed James, the brother of John. And when he sees that that pleases the Jewish leaders, he proceeds to seize Peter, also. Now, it's Passover time. It's the, the biggest uh, festival of the year. It's a, um, a period of great celebration. It's a period of great holiness. And you can't go executing people at Passover. He has to wait a, a few days. And so um, he has prison, uh, Peter imprisoned while he waits uh, for Passover. Now, Twice before, Peter's been in prison. On the second occasion, when the religious leaders went to the prison in the morning to see him and the other apostles, uh, they found they weren't there. Somehow, uh, they had escaped. Everyone's around looking for them, and they can't find them, and they actually were already in the temple uh, preaching Jesus. An angel had delivered them. And so Herod here is not taking any chances. You saw the, the, the security measures put in place. Four squads of four guards on a rotating shift are assigned 
to keep Peter. He's in the innermost part of the prison. He's chained to two of them. He's in this prison cell, inside the prison, inside the fortress. And for many of you, this story is really familiar. You've heard this before as we read it. It kind of stands out as a really impressive story. Uh, The focus uh, naturally falls on Peter and his deliverance by an angel on the night of Passover that God would bring out to captivity by a mighty deliverance. But before we dive to that, in doing that, we might miss a really important point that we must We must dwell on here for a moment. There were two apostles that got arrested. But there is only one that was rescued. We have to think here for a moment about the sovereignty of God. How God rules over all things. And that he does whatever he sees is right. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, said the scripture. Why wasn't James rescued? Why did God allow James to be seized and killed? Wasn't God able to rescue him? Well, obviously he was. Didn't God care? Wasn't Jesus concerned about James? You know, ten years beforehand... Jesus had warned James that this was what would happen to him. Well, wasn't the church praying for James like they did for Peter? Well, of course they did. So why was Peter rescued by an angel, but James was put to death? I don't know. And neither do you. You see, for God to be God, he acts... When and where and how he pleases. That is so basic. That is so important. Our God is not tame. He is not under your control. It's mysterious. We do not know why. Other church must have been praying. Yeah. Sometimes when we pray, when we ask God, the answer is no. If God always delivered what you wanted, always did what you asked, um, you would be God and not him. Sometimes my prayer and your prayer may be in direct conflict with each other. We want two different things that are mutually exclusive. Sometimes uh, we want the same thing, but we differ, we disagree about what the best way it might be achieved is. It's impossible we could both get what we want. Sometimes God says no. Can we trust him? Can we trust God even when He doesn't do what we want. Part of God being God is we have to believe that God knows what is best. His omniscience is all-knowing. 
But not just that he knows what is best, but he knows what is good. And all his intentions towards you, Christian, are for good. Let me illustrate this in the most kind of obvious way. Some of you are parents. Almost all of you have been children at some point. When a child asks you for something, do you ever say no? Well, well, why? Think you love them? Well, sometimes you know that the thing they want isn't, you've got something better in store for them. They're hungry and they're asking if they can kind of have a piece of toast because all the bread in the back of the cupboard is dry. And they don't know that you've you've booked a table at a restaurant for them that evening. You have something better in store than their idea. Sometimes you know that the thing they want just wouldn't be good for them. However many times my children ask, I won't let them play with a chainsaw. If God is God, if he is our heavenly father, if we believe in his power and trust in his goodness, we must expect that sometimes he will say no. If a human parent with all their weakness and frailty would do that, how much more will our heavenly father? It is so important that we we acknowledge this, we, we address this. We want to dive into the miracle. We want to see Peter delivered. But sometimes... Often, usually, we don't see the miracle, do we? We don't get deliverance. Most often, if you are honest, your Christian experience is like mine. We are more often have an experience closer to James than to that of Peter. You prayed that God would deliver your loved one from from disease, but the cancer just came back and they got sicker. You, you prayed to God, but the answer was no. You, you've lived with pain for years. You've prayed, but it's still there. Every night, you're back, just in agony. God has answered no. You feel your memory slipping away as, 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 as you're brain gets fuzzy and it just doesn't work like it used to. And you're praying to the Lord, but it just seems to make no difference. You've prayed for a child or for a a husband or a wife for years that they would come to know the Lord. That they turn from living themselves and, and, and turn to follow him and nothing. How then, as believers, how then as Christians, do we respond to these disappointments, to these Challenges. Let me throw a few things at you. Firstly, quietly and humbly, and as a kind of statement of faith, we have to accept that God is good. And God is mighty. And sometimes he does things different to what I think is best, because he's God and I'm not. And yet to believe that he works out our good and his glory through all these hardships. Go in and read Romans 8 to remind yourself of that. Because God loves you intensely in a way that you cannot begin to grasp and he walks with you, 
through these, these hard things, these shadowy things. He is working out his purposes in them. And maybe you doubt, does God really love me? And the answer to that is, is very clear, very simple. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. See the person, Jesus Christ, God himself enfleshed, hanging on a cross to make men and women and boys and girls enemies of God into his children. No, whatever else you doubt, don't doubt his love. Quietly and humbly we have to accept that God is good. God is mighty. God loves me. And sometimes he does things differently to what I think is best. But another thing we we, we can do in response, because God is sovereign, because God works when and where and how he pleases, as the Westminster Confession tells us, uh, because we trust not only in his his unimaginable uh, power and greatness, but also his unfailing goodness, we can keep on praying. Verse 5, so Peter's kept in prison, but the church is earnestly praying to God for him. There is something very important, there is something very precious about the corporate life of the church. God's people as they pray together, bringing our burdens, our concerns, our hopes, our fears together before the Lord. They were praying, they were earnestly praying, they are praying over the whole Passover period. We do not need to know what God's answer will be in order to pray to him. If our prayer is in line with God's character, with what God has declared to be good, we can pray. We can pray for the friend who's sick. We can pray for the child who's turning their back on God. We can pray about the results of the tests you're waiting for. We don't know the answer. We leave that to God, but we can pray. It's a question to, to discuss over a cup of coffee with a, with a friend. What is it I can pray for? What should I be praying for? Do you know James says, you don't have because you don't ask. That is so often true of us as Christians. We don't have because we don't ask God. Let's not be those about whom God would say, you don't have because you haven't asked. Let's boldly grasp on to heaven with our prayers. Let's, let's flood the throne room of the living God with our prayers. We'd be amazed at the results. But back to Peter. It's the night before he's going to be brought out. He is sleeping. He is sleeping. He's chained between two soldiers. I can't imagine it's very comfortable. He has every expectation that he wakes up in the morning, he's going to be dragged before the king and killed with a sword. What would you be doing? Well, Peter is asleep. There is a peace, a confidence, a hope, a certainty that comes from belonging to God, to knowing that I'm in his hands, that he does everything well. We read earlier Psalm 4, didn't we? In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's Peter's experience. He is fast asleep. And in the middle of the night, there's this bright light, and an angel appears in the cell. Peter still fast asleep. And it, it really is a kind of comic moment. The angel's there digging him in the ribs, like, like you trying to get a teenager out of bed to go to school. 
come on, get up. And the chains fall off. Put on your cloak. Put on, get your sandals. Come on, get dressed. And, and Peter, in this kind of daze, um, the chains have fallen off him. He passes out uh, through the gates, the, the doors that are presumably guarded. He comes to the biggest, most formidable, the iron gates that open in front of him by themselves. The angel leads him on. And in this, as I say, comic scene, you find himself stood at the end of the street scratching his head, realizing it wasn't a dream after all. When the rescue came, it was a, a decisive and overpowering display of, of God's goodness and saving power. If you, friend, are a Christian, the Bible says you've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. I don't think it's wrong to see a metaphor here. That you and I, we were comatose. We were flat out. We were chained between two enemies, guilt and sin, with a sentence of death hanging over us, powerless to rescue ourselves. And God broke in. He shone his light into the very darkness of your heart, that he prodded you awake. He brought you to life. He overpowered the strong man who bound you, held you captive. He led you out blinking into this glorious daylight. Life in him. If you were a Christian, if you were a follower of Jesus, you've been freed from sin and death. Don't think that, you know, Peter's miracle is incredible. But I'm just a Christian. What God has done in you through Jesus Christ is just as miraculous as what he's done in Peter. It's just as awesome as the first Passover when God delivered a nation and brought them out from captivity. Don't lose sight of that. The enormity of it. If you ever wonder why the people you care about deeply and, uh, 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 and love haven't believed, even though they've heard many times, even though it's been explained to them, Understand the enormity of it. They can no more rescue themselves than Peter could. And so we pray earnestly to God that he would do what only he can. That he would act in this decisive display of his saving power and goodness. Peter's there, stood in the street. Well, now what? He makes his way to the house where they are meeting. He knocks on the door, and the servant girl who answers, he's so surprised she runs away, leaving him standing there. She goes and tells everyone inside who think that she's gone mad. And he stood there, still knocking. And they conclude, finally, well, it must be his angel. Hmm, what's going on there? Well, it seems the, the belief uh, among kind of first century Jews is that each individual has a kind of, I suppose, a guardian angel uh, who presumably resembles them, looks like them. And, uh, uh, and that this angel is coming to tell them what's happened to Peter. There's no basis for that in the Bible. Um, but it seems to be what they thought. People think weird things sometimes. 
But, but, but there's this kind of ludicrous scene where Peter is still outside and he's still knocking. You can imagine him a little bit worried. He's banging on the door. He's looking around thinking, I've already been captured once. I really don't want it to, do, to, be, to happen again. It's incredible, isn't it? The doors of the prison miraculously opened, but the door of, of the house staying shut. And finally, he's still banging away and they open it up to him. What do you expect when you pray? Ephesians tells me that God is able to do um, exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. How much can you imagine? How much can you ask? How much more is God able to do? Herod, uh, Peter speaks to them and uh, describes how God had delivered him and then he left. And in the morning, well, there's no small commotion we are told. Something of an understatement, I'm sure. Herod is confused. Herod is enraged. Uh, a thorough search is made for him. They don't find him. He's lost his prize and instead in rage he kills 16 of his own soldiers. Jesus is king. See his reign at work as he rescues his servant from the clutches of his enemy. But then the, the narrative goes on and tells us more about Herod. Herod leaves Judea and goes off to Caesarea. It seems he's given up trying to win favour with the Jewish leaders. He's gone off to Caesarea um, the clue's in the name. It's named after Caesar. He's embracing the kind of uh, Roman uh, way of doing things. He goes off and there in this great, um, uh, he, he's involved in this kind of diplomatic um, issue with the, the people of Tyre and Sidon. Um, and in great pomp and circumstance in this important occasion, they've come and asked for peace. He stood there in his royal robes. Uh, he's making a speech the historian Josephus tells us that his robes were kind of woven with silver. And as the sun strikes him, he's sort of radiant, he's shining. And the people all yell out, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. If you turn back in your Bibles a page or two, um, in Acts 10, uh, when Peter is at the house of a Roman soldier called Cornelius, they all bow down to him in reverence. Uh, Acts 10, verse 25, as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up. He said, I'm only a man myself. There's Peter's response to being uh, compared to, to something worth worshipping. When they try to worship uh, Paul later on in, in Acts, uh, he tears his robes, he's so upset about it. But when the crowd shout about Herod, this is a God, not a man, he laps it up. And Herod's pride, Herod's opposition to God, finally accepting praise that only belongs to God, has gone too far. And God acts. In Herod's rage, he'd punished, he'd killed the soldiers who'd 
failed to guard Peter, he never thought that a judgment would come to him also. An angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. It is sobering stuff. We want God to be the kind of God who rescues with an angel. But you have to understand that the kind of God who is able to rescue with an angel, it's the kind of God who will strike down those who stand against him. He's the kind of God who ultimately will bring judgment on those who resist him. Don't neglect God's holiness. Don't neglect the seriousness of the God we are dealing with. Yes, his mercy. Yes, his love. Realize that God's judgment uh, most likely won't come here and now like this. But do realize this. We must answer to God. How can we stand before a holy God? Well, only by clinging to Christ. The Christ who rescues us, the Christ who brought, uh, brought us out of captivity is the one through whom we can stand secure before God. In uh, Luke 1, Mary um, sings what we call the Magnificent. Uh, a Magnificat. Uh, she says this, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. That's our God. That he strikes down the proud, those who are opposed to him. But he has lifted up the humble. Herod dies. It's ignominious. It's, what a way to go. Kings come and go, but verse 44 tell, 24 tells me the word of God continued to increase and spread. The same Peter later on would write to some Christians. He'd be um, writing to Christians in uh, what we would call modern Turkey. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and he says this. It's true of Herod. It's true of all of us. All people are like grass and their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Herod was eaten by worms and died, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Jesus is king. See his reign as he's at work, rescuing his people and removing his enemies. Father, we thank you for your saving power. Oh, Lord God, how good you are how how vast the love that you've you've lavished on us how tender your mercies how how rich your grace how free your love father we thank you for that we're also reminded lord that you're not a god we can trifle with help us to see your holiness help us to hate our sin Help us to cling to Jesus Christ, through whom we have hope, life, forgiveness. 
We thank you for our King. Amen.